0: Chapter 5 The Renaissance This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Art for Young People by Agnes Ethel Conway and Sir Martin Conway. Paintings discussed in this chapter are Saint Jerome in His Study by Antonello da Messina and The Nativity by Sandro Botticelli. CHAPTER V. THE RENAISSANCE Who is this old gentleman in our next picture reading so quietly and steadily? Does he not look absorbed in his book? Certainly the peacock, the bird, and the cat do not worry him or each other, and there is still another animal in the distance. A lion! Can you see him? He is walking down the cloister pavement on the right, with his foot lifted as though it were hurt. The story is that this particular lion limped into the monastery in which this old man lived, and while all the other monks fled in terror, this monk saw that the lion's forepaw was hurt. He raised it up, found what was the matter, and pulled out the thorn, and ever afterwards the lion lived peacefully in the monastery with him. Now, whenever you see a lion in a picture with an old monk, him you will know to be St. Jerome.' he was a learned christian father who lived some fifteen hundred years ago yet his works are still read spoken and heard every day throughout the world he it was who made the standard latin version of the scriptures the services in roman catholic churches in all countries are held in latin to this day and saint jerome's translation of the bible called the vulgate is the version still in use here you see saint jerome depicted sitting in his own study reading to prepare himself for his great undertaking, and what a study it is! You must go to the National Gallery to enjoy all the details, for the original painting is only eighteen inches high by fourteen inches broad, and the books and writing materials are so tiny that some are inevitably lost in this beautiful photograph. The study is really a part of a monastery assigned to St. Jerome himself, his books, manuscripts, and other such possessions he has a pot of flowers and a dwarf tree and a towel to dry his hands on and a beautiful chair at his desk he has taken off his dusty shoes and left them at the foot of the steps the painter of this picture must have had in his mind a very happy idea of st jerome others have sometimes painted him as they thought he looked when living in a horrible desert as he did for four years but at the time this picture was painted about the year fourteen seventy saint jerome in his study was a more usual subject for painters than saint jerome in the desert one reason of this was that in italy in the latter half of the fifteenth century saint jerome was considered the patron saint of scholars and for the first time since the fall of the roman empire scholars were perhaps the most influential people of the day of course you all know something about the remarkable revival of learning in the fifteenth century which started in italy spread northward and reached England in the reign of Henry VIII. Before the fifteenth century, Italians seemed to have been indifferent to the monuments around them of ancient civilization. Suddenly they were fired with a passion for antiquity. They learnt Greek, and began to take a keen interest in the doings of the Greeks and Romans, who in many ways had lived a life so far superior to their own. Artists studied the old statues which taught them the beauty of the human figure, The reacquired wisdom of the ancients, by degrees, broke down the medieval barriers. There was born a spirit of enterprise into the world of thought as well as into the world of fact, which revolutionized life and art. The period which witnessed this great mental change is well known as the Renaissance, or rebirth. When you first looked at this picture you must have thought it very different from the two earlier ones. Such a subject could only have been painted thus in an age when men admired the scholar's life. Though the figure is called that of St. Jerome, there is really nothing typically saintly about him. He is only serious. The subjects chosen by painters of the Renaissance were no longer almost solely religious, but began to be selected from the world of everyday life, even when the subject was taken from Christian legend, it was now generally treated as an event happening in the actual world of the painter's own day. The manner in which this picture is painted is still more suggestive of change than the subject itself. Our artist knew a great deal about the new science of perspective, for instance. One might almost think that, pleased with his new knowledge, he had multiplied the number of objects on the shelves so as to show how well he could foreshorten them. Medieval painters had not troubled about perspective, and were more concerned, as we have seen, to make a pretty pattern of shapes and colours for their pictures. The Van Eycks, as we noticed, only acquired the beginnings of an understanding of it, and were very proud of their new knowledge. It was in Italy that all the rules were at last brought to light." The Renaissance period in Italy may be considered as lasting from 1400 to 1550. The pioneer artists who mastered perspective and worked at the human figure till they could draw it correctly in any attitude lived in the first seventy-five years of the fifteenth century. They were the brickers of stone and hewers of wood who prepared the way for the greater artists of the end of the century, but in the process of learning many of them painted very lovely things. The painter of our picture lived within those seventy-five years. He was, probably, a certain Antonello of Messina, that same town in Sicily recently wrecked by earthquakes. Of his life little is known. He seems to have worked chiefly in Venice, where there was a fine school of painting during the Renaissance period. His senior Giovanni Bellini, one of the early great painters of Venice, some of whose pictures are in the National Gallery, taught him much. It is also said that Antonello went to the Netherlands, and there learnt the method of laying paint on panel invented by the van Eycks. Modern students say he did not, but that he picked up his way of painting in Italy. Certainly he and other Venetians and Italians about this time improved their technical methods as the van Eycks had done, and this picture is an early example of that more brilliant fashion of painting. There is here a Flemish love of detail. The Italian painters had been more accustomed to painting upon walls than the Flemings, for the latter had soon discovered that a damp northern climate was not favourable to the preservation of wall paintings. Fresco does not admit of much detail, as each day's work has to be finished in the day, before the plaster dries. Thus a long tradition of fresco painting had accustomed the Italian painters to a broad method of treatment, which they maintained to a certain extent even in their panel pictures but in our St. Jerome we see a wealth of detail unsurpassed even by John van Eyck. One needs a magnifying glass to see everything there is to be seen in the landscape through the window on the left. Besides the city with its towers and walls, and the mountains behind, there is a river in the foreground where two little people are sitting in a boat. Observe every tiny stone in the pavement, and every open page of the books on the shelves. Here, too, is breadth in the handling. Hold the book far away from you, so that the detail of the picture vanishes, and only the broad masses of the composition stand out. You still have what is essential. The picture is one in which Italian feeling and sentiment blend with Flemish technique and love of little things. There has always been something of a mystery about the picture, and you must not be surprised some day if you hear it asserted that Antonello did not paint it at all. Such changes in the attributions of unsigned paintings are not uncommon. One of the greatest pioneer artists of the 15th century was Andrea Mantegna of Padua in the north of Italy. More than any other painter of his day, he devoted himself to the study of ancient sculpture, even to the extent of sometimes painting in monochrome to imitate the actual marble. Paintings by him which look like sculptured reliefs are in the National Gallery, and at Hampton Court is a series of cartoons representing the triumph of Julius Caesar, in which the conception and the handling are throughout, inspired by old Roman bas-reliefs. In other pictures of his the figures look as though cast of bronze, for he was likewise influenced by the sculptors of his own day, particularly by the Florentine Donatello, one of the geniuses of the early Renaissance. Montaigne's studies of form in sculpture made him an excellent draftsman. Strangely enough, it was this very severe artist who was, perhaps, the first to depict the charm of babyhood. Often he draws his babes wrapped in swaddling clothes, with their little fingers in their mouths, or else in the act of crying, with their eyes screwed up tight and their mouths wide open. Such a combination of hard, sculpturesque modelling, with extreme tenderness of feeling, has a charm of its own. We have now just one more picture of a sacred subject to look at, one of the last that still retains much of the old, beautiful religious spirit of the Middle Ages. The painter of it, Sandro Botticelli, a Florentine, in whom were blended the piety of the Middle Ages and the intellectual life of the Renaissance, was a very interesting man, whose like we shall not find among the painters of his own or later days. He was born in 1446, in Florence, the city in Italy most alive to the new ideas and the new learning its governing family, the Medici, of whom you have doubtless read, surrounded themselves with a brilliant society of accomplished men, and adorned their palaces with the finest works of art that could be produced in their time. The best artists from the surrounding country were attracted to Florence, in the hope of working for the family, who were ever ready to employ a man of artistic gifts. In such an atmosphere an original and alert person like Botticelli, could not fail to keep step with the foremost of his day. His fertile fancy was charmed by the revived stories of Greek mythology, and for a time he gave himself up to the painting of pagan subjects, such as the birth of Venus from the sea, and the lovely allegory of spring with Venus, Cupid, and the three graces. He was one of the early artists to break through the old wall of religious convention, painting frankly mythological subjects, and he did them in an exquisite manner all his own. The true spirit of beauty dwelt within him, and all that he painted and designed was graceful in form, and beautiful in colour. If, for instance, you look closely into the designs of the necks of dresses in his pictures, you will find them delightful to copy, and far superior to the ordinary designs for such things made to-day." In his love of beauty, and his keen appreciation of the new possibilities of painting, he was a true child of the Renaissance, though he had not the joyous nature so characteristic of the time. Moreover, as I have said, he retained the old sweet religious spirit, and clothed it with new forms of beauty in his sacred paintings. There is something pathetic about many of these. The Virgin, while she nurses the infant Christ, "'seems to foresee all the sorrow in store for her, "'and but little of the joy. "'The girl-angels who nestle around her "'in so many of his pictures "'have faces of exquisite beauty, "'but in most of them, "'notwithstanding the fact "'that they are evidently painted "'from Florentine girls of the time, "'Botticelli has infused his own "'personal note of sadness. "'At the end of the fifteenth century, "'when Botticelli was beginning to grow old, "'great events took place in Florence.' Despite the revival of learning, we are told by historians that the church was becoming corrupt, and the people more pleasure-loving and less interested in the religious life. Then it was that Savonarola, a friar in one of the convents of Florence, all on fire with enthusiasm for purity and goodness, began to awaken the hearts of the people with his burning eloquence, and his denunciations of their worldliness and the deadness of the church he prophesied a great outpouring of the wrath of God, and in particular that the church would be purified and renewed, after a quick and terrible punishment. The passion, the conviction, the eloquence of Savonarola for a time carried the people of Florence away, and Botticelli with them, so that he became one of the mourners, as the preacher's followers were called. At this time many persons burnt in great bonfires of vanities, all the pretty trinkets that they possessed. But when the prophecies did not literally come true, and the people began to be weary of Savonarola's vehemence, we read that a reaction set in, which afforded a chance for his enemies within the church, whom he had lashed with his tongue from the pulpit of the cathedral. They contrived to have him tried for heresy and burnt in the marketplace of Florence, in the midst of the people who so shortly before had hung on every word that fell from his lips. This tragedy entirely overwhelmed Botticelli, who thenceforward almost abandoned painting, and gave up his last years to the practices of the religious life. It was at this time, says Mr. Horne, and under the influence of these emotions, in the year 1500, when he was sixty years of age, that he painted the picture here reproduced, as an illustration to the prophecies of Savonarola, and a tribute to his memory. Savonarola had been wont to use the descriptions, in the book of Revelations, of the woes that were to fall upon the earth before the building of the new Jerusalem, to illustrate his prophecy of the scourge that was to come upon Italy, before the church became purified from the wickedness of the times. At the top of the picture is written in Greek, "'I, Sandro, painted this picture at the end of the year 1500, during the Troubles of Italy, in the half-year after the first year of the loosing of the devil for three and a half years, in accordance with the fulfilment of the eleventh chapter of the Revelations of St. John. Then shall the devil be chained, according to the twelfth chapter, and we shall see him trodden down, as in the picture." The devil, which was loosed for three and a half years, stood for the stage of wickedness through which Botticelli believed that Florence was passing in 1500. In the bottom corners of the picture you can see minute little devils running away discomfited. Otherwise all is pure joy and peace, symbolic of the gladness to come upon Italy when the church had been purified. When life is difficult I dream of how the angels dance in heaven of how the angels dance and sing, in gardens of eternal spring, because their sins have been forgiven, and never more for them shall be, the terrors of mortality. When life is difficult, I dream, of how the angels dance in heaven. By Lady Alfred Douglas That is what Botticelli dreamed. He saw the beautiful angels, in green, white, and red, dancing with joy, because of the birth of their Saviour, and into their hands he put scrolls, upon which were written, GLORY TO GOD IN THE HIGHEST. The rest of the verse, peace and goodwill towards men, is on the scrolls of the shepherds, brought by the angel to behold the babe lying in the manger. The three men, embraced with such eagerness and joy by the three angels in the foreground, are Savonarola and his two chief companions, burnt with him, who, after their long suffering upon earth, have found reward and happiness in heaven. Such is the meaning of this beautiful little picture, as spiritual in idea as any of the paintings of the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries. But while the earlier painters had striven with inadequate powers to express the religious feeling that was in them, Botticelli's skill matched his thought. His drawing of the angels in their Greek dresses is very lovely, and one scarce knows in any picture a group surpassing that of the three little ones upon the roof of the manger, nor will you soon see a lovelier virgin's face than hers. Botticelli had great power of showing the expression in a face, and the movement in a figure. Here the movements may seem overstrained, a fault which grew upon him in his old age. The angel, with the two shepherds on the right, has come skimming over the ground and points emphatically at the babe, and the angel in front embraces Savonarola with vehemence. The artists of the early Renaissance had learnt with so much trouble to draw figures in motion that their pleasure in their newly acquired skill sometimes made them err by exaggeration as their predecessors by stiffness. The way in which Botticelli treated this subject of the Nativity of Christ is, as you see, very different from the way in which Hubert van Eyck painted the Three Maries at the Sepulchre. We saw how the latter pictured the event as actually taking place outside Jerusalem. To Botticelli the nativity of Christ was emblematic of a new and happier life for people in Florence, with the church regenerated and purified, as Christ would have wished it to be. To him the nativity was a symbol of purity, so he painted the picture as a commentary on the event, not as an illustration of the biblical text. The angels rejoice in heaven as the shepherds upon earth, the devils flee away discomfited, and Savonarola and his companions obtain peace after the tribulations of life. Such was the message of Botticelli in the picture here reproduced. End of chapter five. Read by Kara Schallenberg on March twentieth, two thousand eight, in San Diego, California.